Pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. Take God's Word in your hands and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we're in a series that we've entitled simply the Gospel of John. That is the good news of John. The Apostle John who lived with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who heard Jesus preach his sermons, who saw Jesus uh, do great and many signs and wonders, this John the closest confidant and closest friend of Jesus, this John put pen to paper and he wrote a gospel, the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus, that Jesus has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's where we're gonna be this morning, John 14, as we continue in this series where we've met Jesus, where we're learning from Jesus And hopefully, as we've seen today with the example of Ellen, that we're learning to trust Jesus more and more. Well, Brett Michaels' life was the life of a Hollywood star. For as long as he could remember, he longed to be a rock star. And his band, Poison, in the early 90s was one of the hottest bands around. He had everything that Hollywood would want, fame, fortune, Pleasure and possessions, everything he could have ever desired, he had. He was living, as he told one interview, uh, the greatest dream come true. That is until his best friend, his lifelong friend, would die suddenly. It, It would impact him greatly. He found himself in bouts of grief and depression and unable to get out of it. He began to look outside trying to figure out is there something that he could grab a hold of? Is there something that he could put his faith and trust in to believe in that might allow him to find solace and comfort for the pain and sorrow he was facing? And in his journey, he did what he was best at, and that is writing lyrics down on a sheet of paper, speaking to the heart of the issue. He would pen the words, the song, something to believe in. It became a motto of his, inasmuch as he tattooed on his forearm those words, something to believe in. That song would go on and for an entire year uh, would eclipse the top 10 billboard songs of 1990. It it would be uh, one of those songs that would become an anthem for a world that was looking for something, something to believe in. Because like Brett Michaels, there were a great many people who were longing for something to bring an answer to the trials and troubles, the difficulties and issues that we face as human beings. And if we could find something, if we could grab a hold of something, if we could turn to something that would uh, alleviate those problems, or maybe bring a little comfort to those issues, maybe something that we could grab a hold of that would bring meaning and purpose to all of the difficulties of life, then surely we might find a little bit of what we're looking for. But he never found it. Even to this day in my research of of him, he's still living that rock and roll life. And I wonder if Brett is doing what a lot of us do, and that is... We try to find that something in ourselves. There's an adage that has been popularized. It says this, when you need something to believe in, start with yourself. That sounds good. That's a pick-me-up. 
That makes your self-esteem feel a little better, but, but what are you going to do when your world caves in? What are you going to do when you don't have the answer to the questions that are being pushed onto your life? When trials and tribulations come, what are you going to do? Where are you going to pull out the requisite things to be able to address the problems? You see, all of humanity is looking for something to believe in. And in John 14, verses 1 through 14, Jesus says unequivocally, Jesus says so very clearly that he is the something, or better yet, the someone to put our faith, trust, and hope in. But to understand this idea of belief, we need to understand what it is. When the Bible speaks about belief, in fact, this is John's, one of his favorite words. He'd use it 120 so times in the Gospel of John. He uses it five times in our text today. What does it mean to believe? It means to throw yourself completely, to thrust yourself upon, trusting and believing that whatever you do or throw at that thing or that someone, that it will be able to handle it. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to take all of who you are, all of your worries, all of your doubts, all of your fears, all of your anxieties, all of the things that concern you, all of your problems, I want you to take all of your life and I want you to throw it, I want you to thrust it upon me and I promise you that I'll be able to handle it. Jesus would say this in another gospel when he says, come to me all who are weary, all who are heavy laden or burdened, Jesus would say, and I will give you rest. What Jesus is going to say today is, whatever is concerning you, whatever your problem is today, I want you to give it to me because I am the answer to your problems. Now, we hear that with politicians, and they're wrong. They're not the answer to our problems. We hear that in relationships. If I just date this person or marry this person or befriend this person, then all my problems will be addressed. We hear that with jobs and with money. If I only have this position, if I only had this amount of money, everything would be fine. But Jesus says, while those are all failed substitutes, I alone am the one who can handle all that you are going to throw my way. Now, Jesus says this at a very critical point. The disciples are at a crossroads. For the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, the disciples have had their best life. Being welcomed into this new uh, group of disciples, following this rabbi, they are following Jesus, and it has been a great ride. Jesus has taught in ways that they had never heard before. They were enamored by all that Jesus was sharing, how God loved them and had a purpose and plan for their life, and how God had a new thing going and that Messiah had come, and Messiah had come to bring life and to bring all the joy that we were looking for, and they loved it. And then to make it even better, Jesus had begun to do signs and wonders. And they were pinching themselves and pinching one another, going, am I, am I seeing what you're seeing? That, that dude just walked out of the tomb. But we started with five loaves and two fishes, and, and, and it just keeps feeding people. 
Did you see he took water and he turned it into wine? Did you see that guy that we've walked by in the temple who had been paralyzed for 38 years? Now he's walking. Can you believe this? You see, it's easy to believe in someone who does everything well. In fact, it's easy to believe when there's victory. But in John 14, in fact, in John, the end of John 13 into John 14, things begin to change. Judas betrays Jesus. Now for us, we simply say that and it it doesn't involve us all that much, but we've got to understand this is a brother of theirs. This is a guy who's been with the disciples and with Jesus for three and a half years. They've walked together, they've talked together, they've lived together, and now he is betraying with a kiss the rabbi they've come to love. To betray, literally, is he's going to go turn Jesus into the authorities. And now Jesus is saying at the end of John chapter 13 that he's going away. I thought, Jesus, you were going to be around here forever. I thought you were building your kingdom. I thought you were going to uh, evict the Roman government. And now you're talking about, about leaving us. And then... Peter speaks up and probably was saying what everybody was thinking, that no matter if everybody else falls away, Peter says, I am loyal to you, Jesus. I'm going to stick with you. And what Jesus says is in the next 12 hours, Peter, the great spokesman for the disciples, the leader of the disciples, Jesus says, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times in the next 12 hours. And so what we have is a bunch of struggling disciples wondering where to put their belief. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and I think it's helpful. You never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. This is a matter of life and death. They are dead men walking. Judas has turned in Jesus. That means the authorities are on their way, and in a matter of hours, they know what's going to happen. It was not the first time a so-called Messiah had built a following And they knew what happened to so-called messiahs and his disciples, they would be put to death. And so these individuals are, are struggling. And they're wondering where do they go and who do they turn to? The one that they thought had all the answers now seemingly seems to be speaking about defeat and not victory. It is here that Jesus wants us to know something. In our darkest hours the darkest hours for the disciples and for us today that Jesus wants you and I to believe him, to take all of who we are and all that we have and to throw it into his arms. But what does that mean? It involves three things this morning. Number one, it begins by trusting him in troubled times. Trusting him in troubled times. So we know trouble is the order of the day. We know that they're struggling, and notice how Jesus starts the passage. On the heels of John chapter 13, he starts with this this phrase, let not your hearts be troubled. In essence, he's saying, don't be troubled. If you want to underline that word troubled, literally troubled means in the original language to be agitated, to be tossed about, to be shaken and stirred. If you're looking for a word picture or what that would feel like or look like, shove yourself in your washer and allow it to go through a cycle. And then when you're done, throw yourself in the dryer. 
That's what it means to allow your heart to be troubled. You are agitated. You're turned upside down. You're flipped all over the place. You are tumbled. And if you've lived life for any amount of time, you know from time to time there are moments, there are days where you feel troubled. And Jesus says he commands us not to be troubled. Now, a couple things about troubled hearts. First of all, they're full of fear. They're full of fear. These disciples are fearful. They're worried. They're anxious about something. What are they worried and anxious about? What they think is going to be the future. What they're troubled about is not actual, but potential. That's important. They are worried about the what-ifs. How many here have from time to time worried about the what-ifs? Who have worried about the potential and not the actual? They're worried about the possibility of the Pharisees bringing the authorities, taking Jesus, and then taking them and putting them to death. That is what they're afraid of. They are afraid of their lives hanging in the balance. And so they're fearful. Now, when we're afraid, we will see, as the disciples do, one of two mechanisms take place in our lives. The first one is flight. And many of us, when we come to a fearful place in a fearful situation like the disciples, we run. Our desire is to get as far away from the problem that we're facing as we can. And so we take off. And as soon as Jesus is arrested, the disciples, they run. They scatter. And many of you, maybe today, are running. You're doing your best flight mechanism to get away from your problem because you're full of fear. Now, I'm not like that. And there are some in this room that aren't like that. Instead of flight, you're all about fight. And it doesn't make it any better, just different, because we're all afraid Except we want to take on our fears head on, and you want to take them back on, if you will. And we see this with Peter. Peter's like your pastor. Peter, before he runs, he he wants to fight it for a little bit. And so when Jesus is arrested, Peter pulls out his sword, and he wields his sword, and he cuts off, because he's not very good like your pastor, he's not very accurate, and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus says, listen, Flight isn't the right answer, nor is fight. And he puts the ear back on, and then Peter goes running. Some of you are fighting your fears, not in a good way. And you're trying to address this and do this on your own. As a result of this, because of fear, because of our fight and flight posture mentality, we start to see our faith erode. Fear erodes our faith. Nowhere in the text, in fact, for the next couple chapters, will you see a highlight of the disciples. In fact, it isn't until the women show up that we start getting some highlights, right, ladies? Woo-hoo, okay? The guys, man, this is a bad place. And can I just tell you, if you are living in a place of fear, being consumed by fear. I'm going to tell you something, and you may not like hearing this, that there's a good chance you're not living your best faith days. Because fear has a way of eroding our confidence in the Lord. 
Now, the reason why we can't let our hearts be troubled is then seen in the next part of the verse. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, let's stop here. Here are followers of Jesus Christ, and they're facing an impossible situation. Their lives hang in the balance. What should they do? Jesus says, I want you to believe. I want you to put faith and trust in me. I want you to believe that I am able to address this. Now, a couple things about worry and anxiety. First of all, write this down, it's an unfruitful use of time. It's an unfruitful use of time. The disciples are filled with trouble. Their hearts are troubled. What are they troubled about? They are troubled about their present circumstances, and they have good reason to. They are worried about what could happen in the moments to come. And can I tell you, most of our worry is about the things that are about to take place. Now, the reason why it's unfruitful is because everything that in John 14, 1, the disciples are worried about, listen to me, never comes to fruition. Did you hear me? It never comes to fruition. They are all worked up. They are all troubled. And what are they worried about? At the realm of of their thinking is the idea that we're going to die. We're going to die. The Bible makes it clear that not a single disciple loses his life from this moment. In fact, the writer of this, this, this book, the writer of this verse, let not your hearts be troubled. John, who penned this, is going to live another about 55 to 60 years and have faithful and fruitful ministry. And so when he's worried and the disciples are worried in John 14, 1, about what's going to come, they're worried about something that's never going to happen. Listen to me, church. Much of our worries about things are never going to happen. But even if they did, Jesus says, all right, I want you in those moments to believe in God and believe also in me. Now notice what Jesus does. Jesus gives them all they need to not worry. But, and listen, this is really important, because we are unfruitful in our use of time, we're not listening to what's happening, and it makes us unfaithful to our testimony. We say we're followers of Jesus Christ. We say with God all things are possible. We say that if Jesus can do all that he did in the times of his ministry, then anything can happen. But when trials and tribulations come to the disciples, and when they come to us, we, like them, freak out. We, like them, live as if there is no God. Listen to me. Worry is living as if there is no God. Because now you're on your own. You've got to figure it out. Listen, the reason why these people are troubled is because they've taken Jesus out of the equation. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now he goes on. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, help me out. Let's say it like we mean it. Come again. This half is redeemed. I don't know about this half. Okay? I'm going to come again. 
This is where Arnold Jermaine would say, what you talking about? They are so severely impaired in their hearing because of fear that they don't hear that Jesus says what? I'm coming back. So they're hopeless because of their present circumstances. But listen, faithful hearts focus not on present circumstances, but listen to me, upon the promises of God. And so if you're struggling with worry and anxiety and fear, I'm going to tell you for the most part, and you can challenge me, and that's, that's fine, I'm going to say that your circumstances are foreboding in your life. And if you want to be released from that, then start believing the promises of God. God says, I'm coming back. Wait a minute, I thought you were going to die. That's okay, I'm coming back. Wait a minute, we're going to be dead here in a couple hours. No, wait a minute, Jesus says, I'm coming back. But we can't hear it, and the disciples can't hear it, because they are not willing to trust God. I like what Jeremy Taylor says about this. He puts it this way. It's impossible for that man to despair who remembers that his helper is omnipotent. There should be amens going on, so let me read it again. It is impossible for that man to despair who remembers his helper is omnipotent. If we've got a God who the forces of sin and death and hell and the devil and the world can't touch, if that guy's on our side, then what in the world can men do to us? And so if we would believe that, if we would trust that, if we would throw all of that onto Jesus, who is omnipotent, then what do we have to despair about, friends? What do we have to worry about? What do we have to be fearful about? And so in his graciousness, he gives a roadmap. Do not let your hearts be troubled by the way that's a command. Don't do that. And instead of worrying, believe in God. And Jesus says, believe also in me. Now, what is all that to do? The first word that I want to bring to your attention is believe. Five times in these 14 verses, it's declared. But there's a word that's used twice as much, and that's the word father. Father is the favorite word of Jesus when he speaks about God. Father was used in the Old Testament, and it spoke about a God who was the father of the people of Israel. But Jesus is speaking about this father as one who is close and intimate, as one who is personal, one who cares about us, one who is working on our behalf, one who is affectionate towards us. And what Jesus is trying to say to us is missed by many in the church. Because what we forget is why Jesus came. Jesus came not so that the world would look at him Inasmuch as that Jesus came so that the world might look to him so they might see the invisible God. And so the goal, the purpose that we have, Jesus has said, where we want to go, what should push away all of our fears and anxieties is that we've got a Father's house. That the God who created us, the God who reigns supreme, has a house, he has a place, and he has invited us to his table. He has invited us to his house. 
Now, Jesus told this story. Jesus said there was a master, and the master was the richest, most famous, most powerful man in all of the land. And the master of the house invited any and all who would come for a party. And nobody came. And the master was saddened by that. He had prepared this place, he had prepared this banquet, and he had invited. And nobody came. And Jesus says that instead of closing the door and throwing away all the food and and being angry and never throwing a party again, this master sent his servant. And the servant went out into the world, went out into the countryside, Jesus says. And he went, and he went by the highways and the byways. He went everywhere, inviting people to come to the master's banquet. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Before the foundations of the earth, God created his house, the heavens and the earth. And he put us in it. And he welcomed us to the table. And the first two members of our human race looked at his offer and said, we don't want it. And for that whole time, God has been preparing a place, and we as human beings have said, no, we got more important things. And we have excuse upon excuse upon excuse. And God could have said, you know what? Like he did with the angels, you're one and done. You rebel against me, it's over. Off to hell you go. But out of his compassion... The master of the house, God the Father, sends his servant, Jesus the Son, and Jesus goes into the world, he goes into the countryside, he becomes like us, and what does he do? He points and he says, listen, your Father in heaven has invited you to a table, and I know the way. So our big brother, Jesus, comes, and he not only points the way, but he takes care of everything we need so that we can enter our Father's house in heaven. How does he do it? Notice verse six. The disciples are like, wait a minute, we want to go to the party, but we don't have GPS yet. We don't have these new things that they're going to have in the 21st century, phones that are going to tell us where to go. So Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus says, listen, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. You want to get to the Father's party. You want to live in the Father's house. It means turning to Jesus as the only way, as the only truth, as the only life. What in the world does that mean? What it means is Jesus' entire job here on earth, and he says it as we go on in the text, is to point people to the Father, to get people into a right relationship with the Father, to bring restored relationships of human beings back to the Father. But we couldn't find it on our own. Sin had blinded us. We were blind, dead, and held captive by the evil one. And we were ignorant of the way to find the Father. And so Jesus comes and he says, listen to me, I am the way you find God. Now notice a couple things about it. First of all, before we start thinking that Jesus is something less than the Father of whom we're trying to get to, Jesus says, first of all, I am. Now, there's a grammatical and then a theological aspect to that. I am, first of all, is the most intense way of referring to yourself. We would say it's bombastic. We would say of an athlete or a politician or a Hollywood star, for them to speak this way would almost cause us to recoil back. Who do they think they are? 
Jesus is saying, I, myself, and only I am. That's what he's saying. Now, what he's saying theologically is not only for the sense of intensity, but he is saying words of blasphemy. Because I am was the way that God revealed himself to Moses in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying, just as God the Father was the I am, so I am. Seven times he's going to say this. He's going to say, I'm the way, the truth, and life. He said, I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. He says, I'm the vine. He does these I am statements seven times, declaring to himself that there is equality with God the Father. He isn't just a servant, but he is God as well. So this God who put on flesh, who made his dwelling among us, this Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, says, I am the way that you get to God in heaven. How? First of all, I'm the only way. That means any other path, any other route, any other person, listen to me very, very carefully, is wrong. Every one. Jesus is the only person who can get you to God. Wait a minute, that's exclusive. And I live in a world full of rainbows and butterflies. That what I believe is right and what you believe is right, which is a logical inconclusion, because we can't all be right. And so what Jesus says is, not only am I the way, but I am the truth. Listen to me. You will be dead in your trespasses and sin. You will live a life apart from God for all of your eternity if you don't get Jesus right. You can have all the opinions you want, but listen to me, your opinions will fall by the wayside on that day when you stand before Jesus and by the presence of Almighty God that at the name of Jesus your knees will bow and your tongues will confess. So if you are pursuing God in any other way, I will tell you the most intolerant and yet truthful thing, Jesus is it. And if you don't have him, you don't have God. And so Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. He says, I am the life. What he's saying is that you will not have life in the here and now or in the life to come apart from me. In fact, Jesus says to the disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. So my heart breaks, and I use Brett Michaels as a cautionary tale, that rock star. I don't use him to mock him. My heart breaks for him, because instead of following Christ, instead of seeing Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, he continues to do what so many do, in fact, maybe even some here today, that you are trying to figure it out on your own, and apart from Jesus, you, Brett Michaels, and the rest of the world will do nothing when it comes to God. And so Jesus in his great affection and love for us, put on flesh, lived a life as a human being, died a sinner's death even though he was perfect so that he may take upon his body the weight of my sin and yours. And that by turning to him and trusting in him and believing in him and putting all of our sin on him, we might experience the only path to heaven the only true measure of righteousness, and the only source of physical and spiritual life. Jesus said, 
I'm it. I like what Thomas Kempis said when he said this, without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Keep that up there for a moment. Is that true for you? Do you know the way? Is it true that you know the truth? As Ellen said, if you do, it'll set you free. Do you know the life? You see, this is the ball game, friends. This is it. The most important decision you will ever make is not who you marry, what job you'll take, or what you'll do with your life. The biggest, most important decision you'll ever make is what are you going to do with Jesus? And Jesus is saying right now, I'm it. And you can choose to rebel against me and keep living your own way, or you can take all of who you are and you can throw it to me. And I'll take it, Jesus says. And I'll make you new. And I'll save you from your sins. And I'll give you purpose and meaning. I will give you not something, but someone to believe in. And if you've never done that, today's the day. Don't wait any longer. Don't allow fear or circumstances to keep you from believing and trusting in Jesus. Now, the rest of the passage, and I'll do this quickly, is for those who have believed. In fact, in verse 12, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and even greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Therefore, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Right away, people are like, yes, genie in the bottle. I like Jesus. I'm going to be able to do what he does. Well, what does that mean? What it means is that we've got an opportunity, write this down, to take Jesus to the world. Just as Jesus came to reveal to the world the Father in heaven, now, because of Christ, we are Christ's ambassadors to take to the world the path to God. And so as you go into your workplaces and into your schools and into your communities, your whole purpose of being is to follow Jesus, to believe Jesus, and to live Jesus, not only for yourself, but so that all the world may know God who sent Jesus. And so that you can start pointing to people and inviting people to the party, to the banquet that our God in heaven is putting on. And what Jesus says is, not only are you gonna do the works that I've done, which is pretty amazing, But you're going to do even greater things. Does that mean we'll do more spectacular things than Jesus? Not really. I don't believe that God has it in his plans for me to raise the dead. I wish I could. But God's given me a role. And that role is to share the good news of Jesus with any and all who will hear it. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life to God. Now, what is greater than? Write these things down. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have a greater ministry than even Jesus did in three ways. Number one, geographically. Jesus ministered to Palestine. We are ministering to the whole world. 
Number two, numerically. Let's count up all of the disciples that Jesus had in his three and a half years of ministry. We maybe, maybe get to a multitude of 10,000, 15,000 people. The Bible announces to us, and we know that first of all, uh, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the number. It took Jesus three and a half years to maybe get to 10,000. His disciples in one day, 3,000. And now we know that the sands of the seashore can't count the souls that have given themselves to Jesus Christ. And so we're seeing a numerical work that's even greater than Jesus. How about ethnically? Jesus' ministry is primarily to Jewish people. Put in a smattering of Samaritans along the way and a handful of Greeks. And that's the totality of ethnic ministry that Jesus had. We live in a time, we live in an age where we are seeing every tribe, tongue, and nation bow the knee to Jesus. So was Jesus right? Yes, he was. We would do greater works than he. And here's the amazing thing. For those that feel downtrodden and broken up about this ministry of taking Jesus to the world, Jesus says, whatever you need to accomplish that work, whatever you need for God to receive glory in you, in your workplace, for you to glorify God in your school, for you to glorify God in your home and in your neighborhood, whatever you need to glorify God, God says, just ask and I'll give it to you. So that person you've been wanting to reach out to and you're just not sure, God says, just ask me and I'll give you what you need. You want to make an impact in your community, but you don't know how to, God says, just pray and I'll give you what you need. And so we have all that we need if we would just believe. 